Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk, another Monday Madness. I'm Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com, along with Doug Lamarice. We're getting to you much later than usual, and we apologize for that. Some things came up travel, other job responsibilities, reporting that had to be done. I had to brine a turkey breast. Um, hmm. in between all that stuff because i'm gonna go down and smoke it as soon as we're done talking here so a lot of juggling a lot of plates literally plates sometimes your life is very different than mine <laughs> i'm not even sure i know what the verb brine means if you said that brine mean brine means like rub it on your knee pits and beat it with a broom i'd be like no that that sounds right good luck brining that may be an acceptable method of turkey preparation. Uh, and this is the only second time I've used my smoker. So we're, we're kind of fingers crossed on this, but uh, I wasn't going to get to cook it for a while. And the recipe said to brine it. And you're really supposed to brine it like eight to 12 hours. And we're doing like two. So probably didn't do anything, but I figured well, as long as I can't do anything with it, I'll throw it in some salt and sugar and see how it goes. So that's what brining is. Salt and sugar, mm-hmm. stir it in with some water, dump your turkey in there. We'll see how it goes. If that's the case, I think I might be technically brined. Most of the time, because I'm I I constantly have sugar and salt in me, uh, as do I. So I think I probably would qualify. I would probably be quite succulent if someone were to roast me and, and slice me up. Oh, I have no doubt that I would be delicious. <laughs> Fuck, I talk. We're here to talk football, though. Doug and I have both gone back and rewatched as much of the game as we could under these circumstances. I was kind of focusing more on the offensive line and the running game. And trying to get some insight into because our immediate reaction after the game was, well, that didn't look right. Why aren't they running more? Why aren't they running better? I, I think I came away with some impressions of that. Doug, though, let's start with what you rewatched, which was CJ Stroud and the passing game, as you have done often uh, throughout the year. That's not exactly what I did, but it's okay. close to what I did. <laughs> well, what did you do? I went through 86 offensive plays and I judged each one was it good or bad okay and then if it didn't work and and that that level of was it good or not you know it could be jackson smith and jigba's 75 yard catch and run or it could be 
a four yard gain on first and 10, which is like, well, it keeps you on track, right? You're not behind the sticks. So it was very rudimentary, good or bad. And then I looked at, all right, of the bad ones, who was more to blame on that snap to try to figure out like, why did it happen? Who was more off? And so I tried to break it down. Was it CJ Stroud? Was it the offensive line had a breakdown? Was it maybe just a great play by the Nebraska defense and nobody for Ohio state really did anything wrong, but you got to tip your cap was the play. Did the play call just seem not to work? And then I put that on Ryan day, whether they got just outguessed by Nebraska or just was clunky and whatever. And so I, I broke all those down. And so we can sort of go at it that way, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of passing stuff in this. I will tease and say, I got 86 offensive plays because I did include the penalties because like a penalty on an offensive play, that's a bad play. Yeah. So you get, you get a bad for that. So I don't know how many they officially ran my 86. What's your guess, by the way, the good and bad breakdown, according to me of the 86 offensive snaps I looked at, and I didn't include the kneel downs. Oh, I think um, might've been about 50, 50. It's a very good guess. It was like 50, 50, practically the whole time. Yeah. And then they oh, did a, they did a good job on the last drive before the field goal mm-hmm. to go up two scores. And so actually it was 39-39 going into that last drive and it wound up um 46 to 40. 46 good, 40 bad. And th- that's really interesting because when you're watching the game live and you have no television replay I mean, you can watch it, I guess, also on YouTube TV or whatever on your on your second screen. But I you I was struck when I went back through this game, how many of those negative and zero yard plays there were and how many or, or plays that didn't get as much as they should have and how short these drives were. Like, I didn't remember it that way in real time, how quickly Ohio State was sometimes giving the ball back or they were they were pen, they were drives that actually lasted a few minutes, but went nowhere. Right. Yeah, some empty yards, some clearly some empty drives, as we talked about. Only two touchdown drives, and one was a one-play touchdown drive. So sometimes in there, because they did have a couple nice third-down conversions, but they, they had some times where they'd have a clunky first-down play, a clunky second-down play, a nice third-get-down conversion, then another clunky first-down play, a clunky second-down play, another good third-down conversion, and then like clunky, clunky, clunky punt, right? So they would save themselves but they had a couple drives where it just was like, man, that was kind of, that was kind of nothing. And then a nice 11 yard slant on third and seven, and then kind of like nothing, nothing. And, and, and I will say it wasn't like Travion Henderson was getting tackled in the backfield all the time. They averaged three yards per rush. And I felt like they had a lot of three yard rushes. Yes. Right. That that was it wasn't like, oh, they had a 16 and a nine and an 11 and a 14. And then they had a a minus three and a minus four. And it was just like a lot of three yard rushes for their three yard average. And that's not awful, but it wasn't very explosive for sure. So those of us, those of you who follow the Monday Madness each week, we're going to have some categories. We're going to get to those in the third segment. But for this first part, these first two segments, I'll say, let's do this like we used to do back in my old. Uh, creative writing workshops in college, which is you're doing a critique of everybody and you start with, what did you like about this? So why don't we maybe oh, start with some nice. of the, let's start with the positive things before we tear people down. Um, Cause then you, then you would just leave those workshops a quivering pile of tears. Um, not really, but let's start with, I guess you saw about, it ended up being a balance of good plays. 
So what did Ohio State do well from your perspective in the first in this game? I mean, CJ definitely did make some throws when they needed them, right? That that he when he was good, he was solidly good sometimes. He hit much more stuff. There was a time when we were talking about that I thought CJ early in the year was not taking much in the middle of the field. This was almost all in the middle of the field. He was he was, you know, really taking advantage of Jackson Smith and Jigba and little stuff, working inside routes and that kind of thing. And so when that worked, that was very effective. You know, it wasn't a, a huge dose of sometimes I like to give credit for those free money sideline out routes. But if you have a good arm and a good scheme and receivers that scare people, there's not a lot of risk to them. It's just like, I hey, take those 12 yards. He was taking a lot of stuff inside. And so I thought that was, that was showed a level of comfort that we have seen him come along with, but I thought that was when it happened, it was, it was good. Yeah. I mean, I saw some of those same things and I saw there were times as much as we talked about the running game being insufficient. I think there was a juncture of this game where Ohio state had enough success running the ball briefly that Nebraska then had to start respecting the play action, which then opened up some of that stuff over the middle. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those things, again, that Trevor Henderson is established enough that even if he's not slicing and dicing the defense, they still have to respect this respect when Ohio State runs play action. Your overall impressions of, of C.J. Stroud in this game, I was going back through and trying to track the pressures that Nebraska brought. And early on, the first, first series of the game, I had Nebraska blitzing on six of eight plays. And by blitz, I'm just saying they brought more than their down linemen. So anytime somebody else was coming, anytime an extra guy was coming and uh, I didn't count the ones that were where they sh would show a blitz and then kind of hang and then maybe come. I'm just talking about like straight blitzes. I had them on six of the first eight plays and then it became much more sporadic after that. Like you might have just one or two per series where they were where they were blitzing. I thought that was probably strategic. You show it early, get in his mind with it and then kind of fake it after that but then still be able to hang back in coverage. I thought he was having to throw against a lot of loaded coverages in this game. And there were times where Ohio State's line was actually holding up pretty well, but the Nebraska coverage was what was forcing some of him having to move out of the pocket and try to make plays on the run. And I do, I felt, I thought he felt some ghost pressure at times that he thought stuff was coming and it, it actually was like, no, you, you, you had a little more time, but they did a good mix of dropping eight at times. And there were clearly a couple of plays. Some of those it's like, well, how do you judge this? It was, you know, an incompletion where he had time, but it didn't seem like anybody was open and we don't have an all 22. So I can't see all the routes. So I don't know what happened exactly. I usually chalk that up to like, well, that was pretty good defense there, I guess. Right. That I'm not, I mean, he's, I'm not expecting him to make throws to guys who aren't open but I did think he got rid of it a little quick. Sometimes there was one play that stood out to me in the red zone that I really was confused by. It was the quick little flip to Travion Henderson yeah. on like third and 10 at like the 13 yard line or something. And CJ went to him almost right away and didn't, there wasn't really time for anything else to even try to develop. And then, Trayvon Henderson was out there and he didn't really have any blockers and there were Nebraska defenders there and they got no yards or lost yards and they kicked a field goal. And I sort of thought like, well, what, what were they trying to do there? 
because I didn't think it was like guys blue blocks necessarily. Like they weren't guys there and it didn't feel like a check down because CJ went to him immediately. And I just, that felt odd to me. And I it almost, I almost want to ask Ryan day. Was that the first read on that play or did CJ just feel like there was nothing there and get to that too quickly? Because that was kind of a give up play for this offense. And I know people are talking a lot about red zone stuff. I also differentiate a little bit between, you know, if you get to the 17 yard line and don't get in, that's a little different to me than if you have first and goal at the eight and you don't get in, you know, sometimes it's like, Hey, we got, we got first, first and 10 at the 19 and we got four yards on first down and we got three yards on second down and it was third and three from the 12 and we didn't get, and it's like, well, that's not necessarily like, devastating red zone failure to me that like you were right on the cusp of a touchdown and you, you couldn't figure out how to score in a short field. It was sort of like your drive just finally stalled sort of in range of the end zone, but you're still running your own stuff. So I think it's possible. Some of the red zone consternation is slightly overstated at the moment, though there's certainly discussion to be had about what they do when they don't have a quarterback run threat. And we have sort of seen that before. And we saw that with Dwayne Haskins and we saw that with Cardale Jones in 2015 when they made JT Barrett, the red zone quarterback, because they couldn't score in the red zone without a QB run threat. So I I do think there's something to that. I don't think it is at red alert levels yet, but I was intrigued by the times where CJ seemed to go quick when maybe he didn't have to. Yeah, I had that marked down too. It was third and six at the eight. Um, it was two series. It was right. It was a series before then they scored touchdowns on their next two series. So that would have been, if they had been able to convert in the red zone there, it could have been three straight touchdown series. Yeah. And it was the only time in the game that they were executing at that level, frankly. And I wondered about that too. Third and six at the eight, Nebraska blitzed on two of the first four uh, plays of that series from the, the, they brought the middle linebacker around and then they did not blitz again, the rest of that series. And I almost wonder if did Ohio state call a play there thinking he was going to get a different matchup. Did they think yeah. that there were going to be less guys in the middle level than what ended up being there? Because as it turned out, not only was um, there were, there were two guys, I think over there just kind of waiting on that play. I think Nebraska either sniffed it out well or Ohio state just dialed something up expecting something and it, it wasn't there. I thought that was just an example. I thought there were multiple examples really where Nebraska called a pretty good game and executed pretty well. Yeah. And again, I'm just, you know, there's only so much credit you can give Nebraska because Doman's a good player and Taylor Britt made like a really good play where he sort of, dropped off his guy and then dove and broke up a pass to Chris Olave. And that was one of those where I just gave that to the defense. Right. But for instance, the Doman pick, I gave that sort of half great play by Doman half on CJ of, well, trying to squeeze that in on the sideline there. I'm not sure about that. Even though Jackson slipped a little bit, Doman was still right there. You know, I think you could get a little bit of the play call of that too, that, this is not an extraordinary defense, so I don't want to overlook it, but I don't think we can overcredit it. I do just want to give my my overall rankings, though, because I don't want to tease the people too much on this. I, I did break up some of the things like I, I didn't break up any single play into into three things. It was either this was the thing that was most responsible and I'm not saying nothing else was part of it or I split it in half. Right. It's like a half. You can't split a sack into thirds. Right. You can split a sack in half, but you don't split it in the third. So I didn't split a play into thirds. 
if there were, um, as I said, 40 quote, bad plays, who do you think I held most responsible? And it, it wasn't a huge gap between the, the several different people and or groups at the top. Who do you think was number one? Just who was responsible for the play being bad? So when I said, so here's how I did it. So if the play was bad, I said, was it the offensive line? Was it the running backs? Was it the tight ends? Was it the receivers? Was it the quarterback? Was it the play call? Or was it just a great play by the defense? So those are the seven categories that I could assign the most blame for a play. Which one of those groups did I assign the most overall? And you're saying that the number one was close. Yes. I, ooh, I guess offensive line. So I said CJ Stroud, 10. I said good defense and offensive line issues. Each were eight and a half. Okay. Ryan Day, play call, eight. So that, that top four is is very lumped together. Quarterback, play caller, offensive line, good defense, all lumped together. Then a huge drop, wide receivers, two and a half. And for instance, that's Marvin Harrison's hold on what was a good run play. Marvin Harrison Jr.'s drop on the sideline route. That's like the two big ones for the receivers, frankly. 1.5 for the running backs and one for the tight ends. So, you know, that's one of those things. CJ's got the ball in his hand every play. So he has many more opportunities to have something like this assigned to him. When I, when I broke it up by on which play was a group at least partly responsible, right? So CJ had 10. That's, I think it was like maybe like six solo responsibilities and eight half responsibilities, right? To get the 10, Mm -hmm. something like that. So overall, if you were part of it at all, the, the good Nebraska defense was number one with 14. Ryan Day and C.J. Stroud each had 13, offensive line 11. So, so that's still as, – as there, there's a lot of instinct for the offensive line. I think Day had him in kind of – not the wrong stuff, but just Nebraska was in better stuff a decent amount of the time. And, and the worst play of the game, the Mitch Rossi bubble screen. I have, I have no idea what that could possibly – be but the idea that Ryan Day that's on Ryan Day because if you split you I get it you're gonna do that you got line guys up in the backfield you get a personnel mismatch they split their running backs out all the time that that's even an option that's not like a volcano erupts at the 50 yard line throw a bubble screen to the fullback that it is even an option in the playbook is mind-boggling so that's all on Ryan Day that's one of his mistakes Absolutely. Yeah. I, I was, I thought that play was nonsensical. I, I, I understand again why it happened, but why don't you have a better second option? I guess, I don't know. Isn't there some kind of communication that can happen so that you're not giving yourself such a low percentage play in that scenario? Because at, at first glance, I was like, Oh, was it, did they like pressure him into just having to dump it off? But no, it was like, that was how that play was supposed to unfold. Really? Well, there's a, there's a famous play. I think it was from the Alabama playoff semifinal where they ran a jet sweep to Noah Brown, who was like a receiver who's the size of a tackle. And it was like, why are they running a jet sweep to Noah Brown? And it was one of those things where they, they switched personnel before the play and they forgot to sort of match the play call to the personnel and never in their wildest dreams did they ever mean to run a jet sweep for Noah Brown, but they did. And it was ridiculous. And I almost wonder if 
the personnel that they were going to have, whatever, right? Ruckert or Stover or somebody else. And then Rossi wound up in there and then Rossi's out there and it's like, oh, well, we're running the thing where it's sort of like an RPO and you might flip it wide and it's Mitch Rossi. And then I would imagine something like that was the culprit there. Let's take a quick break. We're going to come back after this break and continue breaking this down here on Monday Madness on Buckeye Talk. So I think it's interesting that you split things out like, you know, it can be it can be both things. It can be both a good play by Nebraska and it can be a, a screw up by the offense at the same time contributing to what happens. I think that's a, an important and nuanced way to look at it, because there are things when you watch them in real time. We saw that first series, the play where Chris Olave is breaking free and it's the completely opposite side of the field. But why is it completely opposite side of the field? Because Ben Stilley won his matchup up front and was chasing Stroud away and now Stroud has yeah. no chance to do exactly what Ohio, like Ohio State had written that had drawn that play up to get Chris Olave open that exact way Nebraska one of its best defensive players wins his matchup and chases Stroud the other way it's like we there were just so many weeks of this season where we didn't have a chance to scrutinize things like this because Ohio State was just cutting right through teams and I came away pretty impressed again this isn't the best defense Ohio State's going to see but I thought Nebraska was was winning these some of these matchups in important ways. I thought a really important juncture of this game, um, early in the third quarter, actually the first possession of the third quarter. So Ohio State's defense comes out, has a great series, like just stuffs Nebraska. Jackson Smith and Jigba gets a 20-yard punt return. So they're starting from their own 48. They're up 17 to 10 at that point. And if you go down and get a touchdown here, you find you start to separate. You're putting the pressure on Nebraska. They pretty quickly get a couple of first downs. And then, well, just one play, one quick first down. That's, a, um, again, a play action pass over the middle to Jackson Smith and Jigba. And then they try to go back to the run. And they hand off to Trevin Henderson, but that's the first play. They bring an outside linebacker blitz. I think it might have been Doman. I just I was charting yep. him as an outside linebacker. He blitzes around. Nobody touches him because I think, and I don't even know if he was supposed to blitz there, if it was just a great play read by him. But he takes Trevin Henderson down for a two-yard loss. I split that between great defense and Ryan Day, bad call. Yeah, and because Ruckert was coming, cutting across to the other side of the line. It just left that whole side of the, yes. the play vacated. And Doman walked right through and made the tackle. And in the very next play, um, one of their defensive linemen just shed Paris Johnson Jr., no problem. Still, that, that guy. Stilly? Still, still what's Stilly, his name? Yeah. I think it's Stilly. It was him. Yeah, Stilly sheds. Paris Johnson Jr. like he's nothing gets in and stuffs Trevin Henderson for a two yard loss. So all of a sudden now, instead of being first and 10 at Nebraska 34, now you're third and 14 at the 38. And even when you get an offsides penalty, uh, they, they get, they stall out. They can't get farther than 29 and Ruggles has to try a field goal. That was a, in some ways, a successful drive for the Nebraska defense, even though they gave up points because of Allstate had all the momentum and Nebraska made two plays and stopped it. But they, they got a first down on third down. They threw a screen to Trevion Henderson after those right, two bad right. run plays, and Dewan Jones got a holding call Correct. that wiped yes. it out. Yes. So that was another one of those, and that was Dewan Jones getting beat inside and then grabbing the guy. Yeah. So, And I know people had, at the time were kind of like, did he really hold him or did he just fall down? When I back, went back and watched it, I thought it was a good call. I thought that was a good hold call. No, I thought so. He kind of grabbed him and threw him to the ground. It's one of those Dewan. things. Dewan yeah. Jones is so strong when he holds somebody, the guy, right. like – falls on the ground like a rag doll um but yeah that was a that was a bad series and that second one when when silly got in there was like a delayed handoff and it just but they they mm. missed 
there were some things with the offensive line. They missed some combo blocks again, where it feels like guys think there was a play. I swear where early, early, early in the game, when Stilly got some pressure and forced CJ Stroud to scramble, right? If you freeze frame it, this, it can't be right, but it looks like Nicholas Petit Frere and Paris Johnson are blocking each other because he gets between them and then they are continuing to block, but it's like, it's not a Nebraska guy, but he splits that block. And they had a couple times where again, sometimes guys are getting beat and they're getting beat more than we saw early. But it, also there are still other times where there's just some lack of, Oh, I thought you were going to do this and I was going to do this. And the result is, a guy kind of almost looks like he's letting somebody go because he thinks he's got help and the help's not there. And all of a sudden somebody's in the backfield. Yeah. There were, as it pertained to the running game, I didn't know how much to put on the offensive line. It, it was some of it was half and half again, kind of as you're pointing out, because I thought there were multiple times where there wasn't a huge hole, but there was enough of a hole for Trevin Henderson to get past the line of scrimmage. And then when they were running him up the middle, I thought, Nebraska's linebackers at times just doing a good job, like holding their ground and taking him down. Sometimes when it's a young guy, as talented as he is, and you're going against a veteran linebacker, and these guys are, are good linebackers. I mean, they're probably not that far off of the level of linebacker Ohio State's had the last couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, their names are escaping me right now, but uh, Reimer and um, and Heinrich, like those guys, those guys are solid. Those guys have some neck. Those guys can hang in there. And I thought they were doing a good job. Sort of those are sort of isolation situations, and they were just taking him down. I thought, though, when Ohio State attacked the edge more, which is something we've always kind of seen Ohio State do, I think, with, with frequency, because they know they can get to the edge. They Their speed is always going to beat other teams on the edge. I thought that element was missing from this running game a little bit. I thought when they used it, it worked, and they didn't. They could probably stand to use it more. They And they had the 22-yard at the end, I think it was like wide zone. They just sort of had a lane out there. Some of the stuff in the middle and some of those I judged as good plays because it would be like four yards on first down or second and seven and you get four yards. Like, let it go wrong. But Travion did not have a day where he was making a lot of guys miss at the second level. And he's had days like that where he gets that initial hole and then he takes care of the rest. And he wasn't able to do that as much on Saturday. And so I don't grade that play as as a failure but they certainly had a lot of runs that, oh, that looks like a run that should get three and four yards, and it got three and four yards, where early in this season they'd have a looked like a four-yard run and they get 12. That's fair, but I think some of those were happening against linebackers that were not as good as these guys. And two other things that came to me along these same lines. Number one, when I say get him outside, I don't think it necessarily has to be like, you know, long sweeps around the edge. I think just because there were instances of this game where all they did was, you know, take him off tackle a little bit. And now that same linebacker who was stopping him in the middle, now you're making him be more athletic. Now you're going to have to make him come make a tackle on the run. And Trevon Henderson was making those guys miss. So what might've only been three or four yards became like a seven or eight yard gain. I thought there were a couple of instances of that, just moving those guys. And I thought it was important too, that sometimes you're running back only getting four yards in a small hole is good. That's, yeah. that's worth remembering. It kind of goes back to the first point I was making, but I think there are young running backs out there who would have only gotten two yards out of four sometimes. Yeah. And if you don't understand why that's important, especially on first down, the ripple effects of that can be pretty significant. I'll be curious to see like where Nebraska linebackers are on all big 10 at the end of the year, mm-hmm. especially the coaches team. Cause again, it's just like, all right, well, sometimes oh, these Nebraska linebackers like, okay, well, they're not as good as the Penn state linebackers and they're not as good as the Wisconsin linebackers. Because Wisconsin has the number one defense 
you know, statistically in the country, a lot of it based on their linebacker play. And I'm, are we sure they're better than the Michigan linebackers? Again, this is one of those there. If I'm taking some heat for like not giving Nebraska enough credit, it's like, okay, but are we sure it's not the seventh best defense in the big 10 and they held Ohio state to that? Like I, 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 I don't know if we want to line up and play who has a better defense. I'm putting Penn state and Wisconsin ahead of Nebraska for sure. And then I think you're in a conversation with, are, is Nebraska better than Iowa, Michigan or Michigan state defensively? And if not, they're sixth. So like, what are you talking? What are we like? What are we really talking about here? And it was just a situation where like, there wasn't a ton of explosive stuff from Ohio state and they did enough you know, to keep, to limit Ohio state, they didn't really just shut down Ohio state a lot of the time, but they just controlled them other than Jackson Smith, the jig was huge play. They really kind of controlled them. And then I think you can go back to, well, how much would they have controlled them if Garrett Wilson had also been out there, which I think is fair, but the offensive line is not steamrolling people. And that's some of these things. Sometimes they get such a push where it's like, Nobody's touching Trayvon Henderson until he's five yards down the field. And now he's taking care of guys at the second level. And now how many times have you seen Ohio state execute what looks like a simple run and you think it's a three or four yard gain. And then it's like, Oh, it's second and two. They got eight yards on that. And they got eight yards on it because the offensive line moved the line of scrimmage four yards down the field. And then Trayvon Henderson got four more. And that's eight. Like that didn't happen almost that like, like didn't happen at all on Saturday, which is why, the three and four yard runs that looked like three and four yard runs actually were three and four yard runs. But I think it's fair to go back to the question of play calling sometimes, because I think there were times when they would only get only quotes, three or four yards on a run. And then they don't follow it up and try to run again. Like make, make a team stop you twice in a row like that. Make a team stop Trayvon Henderson in the second level twice in a row. You can't do it every time you're going to have to. And this team strength is, they've got receivers. I'm understand, but I just felt like there were times when Ohio state maybe could have forced the issue a little bit running the ball, because if you're getting three or four on first down, aren't you pretty confident that even if they stuff you completely on second down, you've got a six yard play on third down this team. I I think you probably do. Um, And and I think like, for example, for example, in the red zone before the Olave touchdown, right? The only drive that was a real drive. That wasn't the Jackson Smith, the Jigba. They ran the ball on first down, and I said it wasn't that good of a play. They ran the ball on second down, and I said it wasn't that good of a play. But they were at third and two because, like, stuff was still kind of clunky. But then on third and two, Travion sort of makes those guys, like, dives between two defenders on the edge and gets the first down, and then they throw it to Olave. So that was an example of, like, I didn't think they ran the ball great. I didn't think the blocking was extraordinary. I actually thought they missed – they had a guard pull – and sort of missed the guy on the edge who then tackled Trevion on a play. Um, then they had like a weird, a, a weird wide run to the short side of the field where like there was kind of nothing there and Trevion just ran out of space. But then on third down, they ran again and they wound up getting 10 yards on those three sort of clunky run plays, but they got a first down and then they set up a touchdown throw on first down. Right, Nathan? So I think that's, that's, That's some of that stuff that they just, Ryan Day did seem more reluctant to work it out. And I do think some of the stuff that, that, and Joel Klatt talked about on the, on the show, on the, on the the broadcast, they are having backside linebackers make some plays on the running backs. And part of it is because 
CJ does not hold the backside linebacker as a run threat. Like that's not yep. his fault. It's they're either not running zone read. Most of the time that I've been running zone read. So that guy can crash down and they're just leaving that guy unblocked on purpose or not too often. And that backside linebacker backside linebackers can ruin your life. I was on like the Bo Bishop and James Laurinaitis show last week. And I brought up the play of the Penn state backside linebackers. And James Laurinaitis was like, Oh, you're reminding me of Navarro Bowman in 2008, the backside linebacker, the unblocked backside linebacker. And it's like, that will blow up your run game if you don't find an adjustment for that. And often the adjustment is the quarterback has a run threat and like, they're not there yet with that. One of what looked like one of the huge plays of this game, because we talked about CJ Stroud running the ball so much after the game, third and four at the 18. So they get in the red zone for what was this the first time? First time they're in the red zone. Third and four, they fake the handoff to Henderson, and Stroud keeps it himself, runs for a whatever it was, six-yard gain, get, picks up the first down. Oh, it was great. It was, I, I was like, oh, that was a revelation. Like I don't remember that happening because it's just so early in the game and, and so much other things happen. And, and then three plays later, they're throwing that weird thing to Trevor Henderson you're talking about, and they settle for a field goal. It was uh, So they had a really good play call. And it was kind of the point I was making. You asked our texters after the game, like, what's the element that the running game needs more? I think it's C.J. Stroud doing more of that, just as they were saying on the broadcast. I didn't know it at the time, but it just keeps the defense more honest. And this is just getting back to 2018 and everybody's revelation that when Dwayne Haskins started being more of a run threat in the Maryland game, all of a sudden that changed the offense a little bit. I'm still... I, I don't buy into that as much as people talk about that, but there obviously is something to the idea of just being a threat just that every now and then you, you do keep it just like you, the play that you mentioned. And I do think they might be at a place where they have to do that a little more often, but I will say if this is what's happened so far, it's not really what CJ does best. You think you have an often an awesome offensive line and you think you have an awesome dynamic freshman running back. And it's like, well, we don't need the quarterback as a one threat for our run game to work because we have five guys up front and a guy with the ball in his hands who were great. And now if it's like, okay, it's not that they're not great, but it's that, you know, listen, sort of maybe no matter how good you are, there's good defenses in the big 10. They're onto it. Now we've got to introduce that threat. That might be right where they are because if Penn state's making you pay for it, it's like, well, and that's what I thought. It's like, well, Penn state's extraordinary. And then Nebraska made you pay in many of the same ways And I do think Ryan Day, in scheming this up the rest of the regular season, might be at the point like that I would say, which is, well, if Nebraska can do that to us, then a lot of people can do that to us. So that is not a them issue. That's an us issue. I still thought the Penn State game might have been more of a them issue. Man, credit to Penn State. I think we might be seeing some, some more CJ run, a little different approach play calling because that's a wake up moment against the Cornhuskers. Yeah, I agree. I guess I like to sometimes argue against myself. And so the, the counter argument to what I was saying before about Stroud running it is let's deconstruct it and look at it from the defensive standpoint, though, if you have to worry about those three receivers and Trevion Henderson and that offensive line, as you're approaching a play, isn't the thing that you're giving up in almost any situation going to be CJ Stroud running the ball. Cause that's like the oh, least dangerous sure. thing a house they can do. But I think at least just from a scheme standpoint, from a play calling standpoint, you at least keep them on their, 
toes a little bit. Like I used to, I used to cover a basketball program that like they never played zone. They were adamantly, we're never going to play zone. We're never, we're going to let you know, we're never going to play zone. I was like, why wouldn't you just like play zone like once in a while? Because then other teams have to prepare for you playing the zone. Like I never, I, maybe that's too simplistic to look at it, but I, I think the same thing could apply here. And they did put it on film today. So teams do have to, I guess, look for it. But I think if it was just slightly more abundant, um, it might have a bigger effect. I want to talk about the offensive line because we've discussed the rotations and the the various lineups that they've been using and whether they should just stop rotating, whether they have the wrong starting lineup in there, whether they need to go with a different lineup. And this game was, I think, a good microcosm in some ways because each of these different configurations played a couple of series. So I, I think I, I got this right. I had them, again, I only charted through three quarters and I have them with like 82 plays, 62 plays, I'm sorry, which sounds about right if you ended up with 86. Yeah. So this is roughly correct. The regular offensive line, which is not the regular the offensive line that started the game because Dewan Jones um, was, was feeling ill. But I had that offensive line averaging 7.5 yards of play. I think they had – it was either three or four series with that line. 7.5 yards of play, one field goal, one touchdown. Because I believe the regular offensive line was on the field for the Jackson Pitt and Jigba touchdown. Okay. The offensive line with no Dewan Jones – which, which means Nicholas Petit Frere goes around a right tackle, Thayer Mumford plays left tackle, Matt Jones comes in at left guard. That offensive line averaged only 5.2 yards per play. No touchdowns, no field goals. The no Nicholas Petit Frere offensive line, so Thayer Mumford moves over to left tackle, Matt Jones plays left guard, Dewan Jones stays in at right guard. That offensive line, two series, I think, 3.9 yards per play, one field goal. And then the one interesting one to me, and one that probably needs to be talked about, Matt Jones at right guard instead of Paris Johnson Jr., but everything else stays the same. So your starting lineup, pulling Paris, Jack, Paris Johnson Jr. out, putting in Matt Jones, seven yards of play, one touchdown, one field goal. And that was either, I can't remember if that was two series or three. It might have been both series led to points. That's the one that is kind of interesting to me, that would they look harder at that? Do you say that Paris Johnson Jr. is a high ceiling player who has maybe the, still the brightest future in some ways of all the people we're talking about, but that Matt Jones is the better right guard for this team. I'm not making that statement, but I'm, and this is just one game with one game's matchups, but it's a question worth asking. I think it is interesting to ponder, you know, the PFF grades for all these guys are just, are just really down the last two weeks. Right. Yeah, second week uh, in a row. You know, so Paris Johnson Jr., 89.1 against Indiana. That was his highest of the year. Last two weeks, 56.5 and 59.3. Um, Nicholas Petit Frere had just been, you know, making everybody look foolish with the way that he had been playing. And his grades were all above 73, above 72 the whole year. Penn State 41, Nebraska 53. I do think... Nicholas Petit Frere to me is not playing as well as he had played. I would stop moving him. That it, because when we talk to him, he doesn't say, Oh, yeah, no, left, right, whatever. It's all the same. Nobody, it's like it's everything's opposite. And it took him a while to adjust from being a right tackle to being a left tackle. And he made that adjustment. And now, like multiple series a game. You're like, oh, wait, just go back to the other side. And do you remember how you had to retrain yourself to do everything this way? Now unretrain yourself and go back the other way. And he has not played as well. And 
And I, I think maybe that it's not like they weren't playing Matt Matthew Jones before, but when they were playing Matthew Jones before he was more just getting guard snaps, this thing of like, we're going to change the whole line. That is more of a recent idea, right? I'm not crazy. Am I? Yes, but it was also one born of necessity because Dwan Jones is over puking and they had, you know what I mean? So I guess what you're arguing is that they should have left the rest of the line intact and just put somebody else in a right tackle as opposed to flipping everything around. I mean, that's worth, that's worth who, wondering. Who, who am I to say, right? <laughs> but <Like I> saw. <laughs> you know who's playing on the right side of the line that is doing everything right side handed? who knows how to play tackle Paris Johnson. So I'm not sure why I just, it's like, why is Petit Frere getting beat more the last two weeks than he has been getting beaten before? Because before he didn't give up. He was like a plus every snap for the first six games. And now you can see him getting beat. Why is that? I would look for that answer. Maybe he has a slight injury. Maybe he just fake, faced great guys. Maybe, you know, nobody can be perfect for a whole year. I get that. I get that all those things. But I would investigate, leave him on the left side and stop moving him around. And if you don't want Dewan Jones on the field for a series or if he can't go for a series, then figure that out in a different way than making your former right tackle who became a left tackle go back to be a right tackle. I think that's a very good question. Like, why not just slide Paris Johnson Jr. over? I'm sure they're going to say, we're already asking him to make this change and focus on right guard. He's still got some work to do there, etc. But you know Matt Jones can play right guard because you keep putting him there, sometimes in place of Paris Johnson Jr. So, uh, But you know what I think, and maybe I'm wrong on this, you know what I think? A natural tackle who's playing guard and is in at guard figured out all these combo blocks and I've got to pull and I've got to get over here. And oh, here comes the defensive tackle and here, you know what he might want to do get out on the end and pass protect. <laughs> Cause that's yeah. fun. Right. And you know what? He's probably really good at that. Let him do. I, I think he would see to me, right. I think Nicholas Petit Frere and I'm putting words in people's mouths. I think it's possible that Nicholas Petit Frere, when you move him from left tackle to right tackle in the middle of a game, his reaction in his heart is something like, okay, well, I'll do whatever the team needs, but okay, left hand again, what, light, left, right, what am I doing? And if you told Paris Johnson, we need you to slide to right tackle for a series, I think he'd be like, oh, yes, give me some of that tackle action. I don't think he'd be like, oh, no, I'm only doing guard now. I don't know. So I don't know. I'm not disputing the premise of what you've put out there. I will say that it's possible that Paris Johnson Jr. isn't playing any tackle right now in practices. And this is something that popped up on the game, on the day of the game. Like they didn't know Dewan Jones was going to be ill coming into the game. I don't think it's just something that happened as they got there. Now they had to sort of scramble a little bit to put something together. So that might be again, why they didn't, that wasn't their first thought was to slide him over. And we should also mention that through the Ryan day did say after the game that there was something going on with Nicholas Petit Frere. He said he missed some practice this okay. in the previous week. So whether that's an injury, whether he also had uh, tummy trouble, I don't know. We, he didn't specify as he often doesn't, but that that was where he left off there. So and listen, nobody on that line is like getting blown up every play. We are judging them against their previous standard, which was practically perfect for the first six games. So it is a really, really, really high level 
But, you know, the PFF grades tell you at least a little something and their grades are way down from what they were. And as I've always said, yeah, don't don't get too much into any one game's PFF grade, but look at a trend. And I think we can start to call this a trend. Like they were trend, they were great when this team was blowing people off the, ro- the field. All those offensive line grades were great. And these last two weeks, when it's been a much tougher go of it, the the grades have fallen precipitously. Anything else you want to talk about from this game? No, as long as I, I got to tell everybody my my good bad breakdown, so I'm good. The good bad breakdown. All right, we're going to come back and talk about the usual Monday Madness categories, including just kind of the status of, of college football after this past weekend and Ohio State's place in it, especially as it relates to the playoff. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. All right, Doug and Nathan back here. I'm just jumping in to tell you guys about a podcast that is happening in our company that is kind of different than what we do on Buckeye Talk or Orange and Brown Talk or the College Football Playoff Show. It's, it's really interesting, and I know certain people are very into these narrative podcasters through the podcast medium telling a story. It's called The Mayor of Maple Avenue, and it's from our good friends at Penn Live, and it's a multi-part podcast about Sean Sinisi, who was one of Jerry Sandusky's victims at Penn State. We know Jerry Sandusky, you know the deal there. Arrested 10 years ago, numerous uh, child sex abuse charges. Terrible situation. It's written by Sarah Ganim, who like broke all this stuff for Penn Live back in the day. And so she, she is now back to do this podcast series. And this is how they describe it. It takes listeners into the world of addiction rehab, where, excuse me, society can be quick to celebrate the consequences for abusers while not addressing the needs of their victims. So it's a co-production of Penn Live and Meadowlark Media. Um, just search for the Mayor of Maple Avenue. Intriguing title, is it not? The Mayor of Maple Avenue. Love search for that wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever, you, wherever you're listening right now, just search for the Mayor of Maple Avenue. You know, it's something different, right? It's football related. It's not like it's, it's not really about football. It's about important issues in life. But certainly that was something that, you know, was a huge story a decade ago. And so to double back on that now and think about the consequences and how it affects people, you know, that's the kind of stuff really matters. So I think it's a really good project by Penn Live. And, and we would uh, invite you guys to try that out, the mayor of Maple Avenue. Also quickly, I hope it's not happening again. I know my audio was kind of jacked up after the game. I don't know what it was. Same mic, same way of talking. Nathan and Steven were both on a phone because of internet issues. And I can't hear the difference. So they couldn't hear the difference in me. And I can't hear the difference while we're recording. So I didn't know until after the fact. And so I double checked stuff multiple times before this podcast and it sounded okay. So I apologize for that. That is not good enough audio quality, but we had done 90 minutes on a huge game. And it's like, well, we couldn't trash the podcast. And, and I, it wasn't, as much as this is hard to believe, Nathan, to my knowledge, it wasn't user error, which often things are on Buckeye Talk or with the texts. That should really just, just like, be the slogan. Or the name. Often it's change. user error. <laughs> so I apologize. Like, I, I know that's not good enough. I felt I had a rough week at work. I had a bunch of things that didn't go the way I wanted them to go. And that was one of them. And like, it makes me sick to my stomach because I thought the quality, the, I thought the content was good. 
and the audio quality was not. So that's, but it's on me. It's my mic. It's my deal. So I apologize for that. And then I just want to say, ending my week, I don't know how this happened. I went to the Browns Bengals game in Cincinnati. The, the, there is still, it must've been, I've seen it happen at Browns games. It happened with Ohio state. It clearly was happening with the Bengals, the world of like online, like tickets on your phone, plus metal detectors, and you don't have enough stuff. And a lot of people are coming to a big game. I was in a mob of like a thousand people at an entrance for like 30 minutes to try to get to the media gate. And it's not like I should be special, but usually there's a separate entrance for the media gate. I was just in the throng and I missed, like I missed Denzel Ward's 99 yard pick six because I wasn't in the stadium yet. And I parked my car an hour before the game. So the Bengals, I don't know, but I like, but I wasn't paying all these fans, Bengals fans and Browns fans, like weren't in the game for the 99 yard pick six because the Bengals couldn't get them in the stadium. And it was happening all over the place. The concourses at Paul Brown Stadium are really small. It's almost like it's not designed for the Bengals to be good because that was a huge game, huge interest for Ohio football fans. And a lot of them got screwed out of seeing, you know, the first eight important minutes of the game. So I almost want to report on it, but I don't have time. But I'll just say from personal experience, like bad job by the Bengals. And it made me freaking mad. I'll tell you, I was boiling by the time I got into that game. So, but part of the reason I was mad is because I had listened to the podcast and I knew my audio was terrible. So sorry, everybody. And thanks for letting me vent. You're they, every, you guys listening know you're my therapist, right? Nathan, you, you know, you and Steven are my therapist too, right? I, I take no responsibility for that. No, no, no. Oh no, no, no. Not in a responsible sense, just in a sit there and listen sense. Yeah. Okay. I'll be a sounding board. I won't be a therapist. Uh, well, when I no, go to a therapist, I, I don't actually want advice. I don't actually care what anybody would, would tell me to, to do, how to solve my problems. I just want you to sit there and listen to me complain. Fair enough. That's that's worth however much I'm charging you. How much am I charging you to be? Oh, actually, my salary just skyrocketed. I think I'm charging, what, like 75 bucks an hour probably for this? <laughs> yeah, Man. I'll just expense it. I'll, just, <laughs> I'll put so in, a, I'll put in a, I'll, I'll submit and then we'll get it approved. I mean, no, I'll start losing. I'll start losing money on this podcast because it's like, oh, I do ten podcasts a week, but half of them are just me complaining, and so I have to pay the therapy rate. Honestly, I think everybody who listens to this should probably be able to charge you, right? Don't you just, please, you just if, said it. You just said it. Everybody is your therapist. They're all listening. This is th- so. I like all. However many people listen to every episode of Buckeye Talk, which is significant. If if the texters ever figure out that the money equation and that is reversed and that we probably should be paying them and they're paying us. We're dead. So I am grateful every day for the three ninety nine a month. People are paying for me to do this to them. Yeah. Tell, tell, tell Mickey and Donald, you're not going to see him anytime soon at, at this rate. <laughs> oh, it's a choice between Disney or therapy. It's definitely Disney. I'll just, I'll just let my problems eat me alive from the inside. Then I'm not skipping a Disney trip. Come on. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, just real quick, I, I think you're right, though, about the stadium situation that some, these teams have to figure that out. Ohio State's had some issues with that earlier this year, and it, there's going to be an incident eventually, right? It's going like to get Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it makes me sick to my stomach. I, I mean, I wasn't, it's not like I was fearing for my safety, but we just had this terrible situation where people lost their life yep. at the Travis Scott concert. Like anytime that you're in a large group of people who are getting, anxious, right? Who are eager to get somewhere. If anybody ever decides to start to really push, I mean, there was nowhere to go. 
in that group for the game. And it, it, to me, it's, it, there was no lines. It was just a throng. I was irresponsible by the Bengals. And I would say that about, I'd say that about the Browns. If it was that bad, I usually don't experience it that way, but it is. I mean, that's a very good point. It's not only a, Hey, I paid to get in this game and I took me an hour to go 10 feet and I missed half the first quarter. It is a safety issue. And so I thought that was awful. And if that's how it is all the time, then it's awful every week. It's inexcusable to me. Figure it out. Make a line. And if, if it's because, because I know when you do the Ohio State stuff at the moment, it still is like they scan it and it takes a second with the scanners they have, right? Because they're scanning our parking passes. It happens. They scan it. And then it's like, oftentimes they're like, okay, hold on. Okay. Okay. Like it is not like, it's not like checking out of the grocery store. It's not boop, boop, boop. Boop, and moving people through. And I understand that you have to be safe and you have to have people go through metal detectors or whatever, but we're into this now. Like this is the new world. You've These teams have to figure it out. We're not going back to what it was before. And so if you're going to have, if you're going to inspect people and you're going to use paperless tickets, like it has to be better than this. Even if it's not a safety issue and we don't want to overdo that, but it's a good point that you brought up for sure. It's not right. How, how early do you have to get to a game to think I'm going to park my car an hour before the game and walk 10 minutes. And now I'm outside the stadium 50 minutes before kickoff. And that's not enough to get in. That's crazy to me. The NFL and college football is a multi gazillion dollar business. Get your fans in the stadium more efficiently. Well, especially the fan like us, whatever, but people who paid 300 bucks a ticket or whatever to get into these games. Yeah. Like, come on, come on. Ridiculous. Come on, Buckeye talk. Ridiculous, Buckeye talk. Story of the week is uh, how many times will we hear the number 2018 when we do interviews with Ohio State players this week? Although there aren't that many of them, really, that were around for that. I was looking back through the box score. Marcus Williamson jumped out at me as somebody who played in that Mm -hmm. game. But not a lot of Ohio State players played in that game at Ross State Stadium in 2018 where Ohio State uh, lost to Purdue 49-20 to and kind of ended their playoff hopes for all intents and purposes at that point. And now you've got Ohio state coming off of like, it's two scuffles in a row. You've got Purdue coming in off of a huge win over Michigan state, the team that was, you know, top five in the AP poll, top three in the college football rankings. And uh, it seems like a convergence of a team, maybe playing its best football. Although Purdue's been up and down this year has also had some losses that are questionable. And then an Ohio State football team that is not playing its best football right now. Yeah, and I do think, I mean, I, there's enough real football stuff here that they don't have to get too tied up in like the ghosts of Purdue stuff mm-hmm. that, that certainly does exist in a 2018's latest example. I follow enough draft people and NFL people. And the last couple of weeks, the clips that respected draft analysts are putting out about George Karloftis are eye-opening. Not eye-opening. That, but like eye-opening to me that their eyes are so open. Like they are t- talking about this guy in sort of an unblockable guy kind of way. And it, it is not that different from the way that people talked about Chase Young or Nick Bosa or anybody else, any great defensive end that has come through Ohio State. Th- this guy looks like a top 15 pick and is, is getting better every week. And Ohio State did not face Kayvon Thibodeau. So this is a real thing. And there was a time, Nathan, two weeks ago, where my opinion of George Karloftis would have been like, well, yeah, but Nicholas Petit for Dewan Jones. At the moment, that is not my opinion about that. I'm not saying he's going to smoke them every snap, 
but they have not played like unbreakable walls at tackle the last couple of weeks. And they are facing a guy who people are saying is excellent, like better, I think, than even we maybe took into account. So that's that's real. And then David Bell on the other side is almost the same thing. I actually think Karloftis for Ohio State, I mean, we could talk about this later this week, like who's more of a game wrecker, who's more dangerous. DeBell has wrecked people, but Ohio State's not, their defense has sort of started to play better than our offense in some ways, but this is still a thing. It's, I think it's a bigger deal if, if Purdue wrecks Ohio State's offense than if Purdue wrecks Ohio State's defense, because you already have questions about the defense a little bit, right? That when David Bell did that to Iowa, it was like, oh, Iowa stinks now. Because if like if they can't guard David Bell, it's like, well, their offense isn't going to do anything. So it's like, well, that game's over. So if David Bell goes nuts on this Ohio State defense, and it's like, okay, well, it looks like Ohio State's going to have to score 48 to win. But this offense has shown it can do that. But if George Karloftis is in the backfield every series and preventing that, and now here's a couple three and outs in a row, that to me is a bigger problem. That'll be a good video, I think, for us later this week. So people can look for that on our YouTube channel. Like, who who's the bigger threat for Ohio State? Yep. It'll be a, just an easy conversation for us to have. And I'm sure we'll do it again on the pod, the, the preview pod for Friday. Here's the way I would look at it, though, almost. Like, if David Bell put both those guys on Ohio State's roster, David Bell arguably would start for Ohio State. He would You would probably rotate four guys through three, or mm-hmm. maybe Jackson Smith and Jigba just wouldn't be a starter yet, and Garrett Wilson would still be in the slot. You'd line David Bell at maybe David Bell in his slot. I don't know. But he would he would still probably start or play a lot for Ohio State. George Kalaftis would be Ohio State's best defensive player. I won't even listen to an argument. Like He, is, he would be the best defensive player for Ohio State. He'd be the heir to the... Bosa Bosa Young crown. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we'd be just, we'd be like, up, oh, just, he's the next one. And again, Tyreek Smith has started to play approaching that level the last two weeks, but Karloff this, but Tyreek, and again, we know Tyreek's battled injuries and we know how high, high of a level he's playing at right now, but he just has been doing it all year. And yes, I agree with you. And Karloff this uh, had uh, COVID last year and was hurt a little bit. And I think he, he kind of fell out of mind, out of sight, out of mind coming into the season a little bit, but he was a freshman All-American for a reason back. I mean, he's done some of the things already that we keep saying, well, Zach Harrison and Tyreek Smith could probably do those. I think we've right. seen it just a little bit more from George Kalafas. And that's being in a defense where teams can focus on him, trying to take him away a little bit more than they have. And that's why if you go look at the numbers, we don't want to get too far into this, but go look at the numbers. And one of the reasons is because teams can focus on trying to take him away in a way that they probably can't some of the guys even on Ohio State's defense. Walk the line, it opened at minus 19. It's up to minus 20. It's a really interesting matchup from a betting standpoint to me because you have, again, what we already talked about, the convergence of the trajectories that these teams seem to be on, small sample size, last couple weeks. But then also just the betting history between these two teams. It's a massacre. If you've been trying to bet Ohio State as a favorite against Purdue for the past two decades, I think it's it's four and... uh, um, Ohio State is four and eight against the spread in the past 20 years, 12 games in the past 20 years. And that actually, that 20th year was actually one where they won against the spread. So it's three of the last 11 against the spread. Ohio State has lost. This is not, it's just been a weird, and, and they're not even a team that they play every year. And that's a lot of different coaching staffs and a lot of different teams, but just a weird vibe between these two programs for whatever reason. No, we've, and, you know, we've, I've covered that a lot. We've covered that a lot. It is like it just why does Purdue beat Ohio State more than Michigan does? I don't I don't know. They don't have 
They don't have better players, but sometimes their singular players have had games where they have done that to Ohio State. And that in particular is talking about Rondale Moore and Ryan Kerrigan. And this year they have both. They have their version of Rondale Moore and they have their version of Ryan Kerrigan. And both those guys sort of beat Ohio State by themselves. And now, uh, am I scaring people? (laughs) I mean, it's one of those things. It's like, again, I'm not the other. I don't even know who the uh, Aiden O'Connell quarterback has played very well for a former walk on. I mean, that is he is he's in the David Blau zone of like, hey, man, I don't know. But like doing what you do, got to do to get it done. And then, by the way, David Blau's an NFL quarterback, the quarterback from 2018. Like he's an NFL quarterback. He is a real NFL backup. He's on rosters like that's that's a real thing. So I don't know if going into that game in 2018, people were like, oh, no, this guy's going to be in the NFL. Because it's like, okay, well, JT Barrett's not in the NFL. David Blau is, right? So, like, that's – like, David Blau right now is basically – and maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know if he's the actual backup in Detroit. He was in Detroit. I'm not sure there's a lot different right now between David Blau and Dwayne Haskins as an NFL guy. So, in 2018, when that game was played, you would have said, oh, my God, what's Dwayne Haskins versus David Blatt? It's like, well, is it? So, but Aiden O'Connell, I'm not suggesting that about C.J. Stroud and Aiden O'Connell, but Aiden O'Connell's played very well. But, again, these are two dominant guys, and in this series, sometimes that has been enough for Purdue. And a month ago, I would have said the reason why I gave Purdue really no chance, not only because of the way Ohio State was playing, was because their quarterback situation was just so up in the air. They hadn't really settled on O'Connell. They got a guy named Jack Plummer who came from uh, Arizona. He actually worked with the same guy that Jack Miller trained with out there. Um, they've got a guy who's a transfer from uh, either UCLA or USC, Austin Burton. I think it's UCLA. I can't remember for sure where he transferred from, but they've got multiple guys in the mix. They were playing all three of those guys in the Iowa game, like mm-hmm. first series of the game. They used three quarterbacks, but then this is a place in Purdue that has, they literally call it the cradle of quarterbacks because of all the quarterbacks who've come through there. It's like the one place in the big 10 that good quarterbacks have gone to play over the years. And there were people that I trust, like people like the equivalent of like Purdue's equivalent to Jack Park. Those kind of people I saw on Twitter this past week, arguing if that or debating whether that, Aiden O'Connell performance against Michigan State was like the best quarterback performance in Purdue history. So, you know, now I don't know if they came to a consensus, but like, you know, Greasy and Breeze and Jim Everett and whoever else you want to put on that list. Kyle Orton. Kyle Orton, like a bunch of great people. Mark Herman, like great quarterbacks over the years. And they're wondering if O'Connell's performance last week was as good as any of them. So that's just something to keep in mind. So that leads us to fear factor. What number are you putting on this game? So, like, I, I'll go to my grave not respecting Nebraska that much. I'm like, I'm, I'm fine with that. If you think I didn't respect him enough, that's fine. I'm telling you, that's like, that's not it. Like, if that's that's middle of the pack. Purdue is not middle of the pack. Now, they did lose to Minnesota and Wisconsin, so they're not world beaters, and they lost to Notre Dame, but. To beat Michigan State, to beat Iowa with the guys they have, Brom, man, I don't know, I don't know about Brom. Like, I don't think Brom for twelve games, like for six years, for a huge contract. I don't know how much I'm in a hurry to get out to run out and sign Jeff Brom to a huge deal to lead my program but I would not want to face him in a game, right? That they get a, they get a, a, they usually have a couple good guys. And then if he dials it up 
and the, he lets the their best players. I think that's the keto game. Like this is he has to maximize produce great players and sort of hide produce not so great players. And so can you do that? Can you do that in a way? Well, well, what if Ohio state double teams, George Karloff this, and then can they cover Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, whatever? Well, can they throw some funky defense? Can they throw a weird zone? Can they disguise coverages? Can they try to confuse CJ Stroud, whatever, because you're not going to win one-on-one with the receivers. Okay. So David Bell, well, if Ohio state tries to really lean toward David Bell, all right, well then are you going to, run a trick play to get David Bell open or use David Bell to, to motion and bring the whole defense to one side and throw back, back to the tight end because David Bell got everybody's attention. Like, I think Brom can do that. And so I think the fear factor is like decently high. I think, I, I think it might be, and then you throw in, I said, there's enough football here. That that's your first thing. It's not the ghosts first. But the thing of this series is weird enough that I, I would count the ghosts. So if I thought it was a six, I'll make it a seven. Or if I thought it was a seven, I'll make it an eight because there's the Purdue weirdness factor that I do think you have to take into account some way. I mean, I still think Ohio State has a talent edge overall in this game. No question. But no I was question. Gonna, I was going to put 6.5 on it, something like that. And part of that is history. Part of that is the momentum that these teams do relatively seem to be building. Ohio State does think it'll get Garrett Wilson back, though. It's funny that you mentioned that that Marvin Harrison drop in this game. I wrote like in big letters on my yellow pad here, like Garrett, like right there, because yep. that's we were talking after the game. Like what you know, what difference does he make? Well, Marvin Harrison Jr. isn't the one that that pass is getting thrown to that he drops. It's one of the other three guys who are all better than him right now. So that just that makes a, a difference in a game like this. I absolutely think they're going to dial up some funky stuff because they always do. They did it in 2018. There was some goofy stuff in there. And sometimes it's it'll be a reverse flea flicker. It'll be a fake reverse flea flicker. And the running back just runs with it. They'll do fake punt stuff like it. Something weird is going to happen in Ohio Stadium on Saturday, whether or not. Ohio State ends up blowing them out. Purdue's going to try to do something weird because they just always do. Um, not sure where I stand yet on the betting line, but that that's, I don't know. That's a pretty big number, but I do think Ohio State has a big talent edge still in this game. And one thing to keep an eye on, so Purdue's two, next two games are at Northwestern and at home against Indiana. They'll be favored in both of those games. So they've got a good chance to finish regular season eight and four and then go to a pretty decent bowl game. And there's a lot of head coaching openings popping up around the country. And Jeff Brom's name seems to keep coming up in a lot of them. And the two guys who we've just talked about are gone after this year. Karloftis and Bell are both going to be NFL draft picks. And both of them came from Indiana. So it's not like they demonstrated a, a, an ability to go to California and Florida and Georgia and Texas to get their best players. Two guys right down the road. One of them literally is what grew up like is from West Lafayette High School. Um, covered him doing stuff in high school. So those two guys are gone. It wouldn't surprise me if this is probably the last time Ohio State has to face Jeff Brom. This is Jeff Brom's official audition for the Florida job. Because we had talked about, I, I think I mentioned we talked about P.J. Fleck, and then P.J. Fleck signed a seven-year deal. So, like, Jeff Brom's up. Jeff Brom's up as, like, hey, the, hey, hire me at a bigger school, Big Ten guy at the moment right now. Um, I am losing people money, and I, I don't take that lightly. <laughs> Yes. Our guy Bradley was like, Doug's losing me money. And like, I, I don't know what to say. Nebraska's not that good. I can't, I can't help it. Adrian Martinez is not ever going to make plays, but yet Ohio state, honestly, and we have not talked about it. That was, that was a hold on Marcus Williamson on the third down throw that they didn't call. Yep. Right. That's, un- and, if, so. and if, if they throw that flag 
and Nebraska gets a first down, Nebraska might march for the go-ahead score. Like that's a totally not guaranteed, but possible 30% chance at least. I don't, I don't get it, man. Like I, I don't know. There are not that many special guys on that Nebraska team. There are more special guys on every team they're playing from here on out until the season's over. And at Georgia, there's 400 more special guys than Nebraska had. So I stand on that. That is not, I underestimated Nebraska. Ohio State did not get it done in that game. So don't listen to me. But what has to happen is they have to do something different. So that has to be the, well, we have to do something different. And, but I will say this. After Oregon, they decided we need to do something different. And then they did, but it didn't make a huge difference right away. They still were not very good against Tulsa. And then it clicked in. So if they decide to try to change up some of the play calling or maybe run CJ Moore or whatever offensively, I think this might be the adjustment week. And maybe they get it rolling and the offense jumps up for Michigan State and Michigan. But I don't know that that would be instantaneous. So this feels like a big line to me, but I almost feel like I have to stop suggesting anything to people because how how did Ohio State not beat Nebraska by 17? I, I, I doesn't compute to me. But now, again, we've seen Ohio State enough times and they do this and then they get adjusted and they lock down and Tyreek Smith is really going crazy. And now all of a sudden they come out and they win 49-20. Right. So I, I don't know. I might have to stop. I can't lose people money. If I will, you allow listeners, I'll keep making picks if you promise to ignore them. That's the only way I'm going to do it because I'm off on these guys and I don't I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to get back on track. I don't have a sense, Nathan. I'm like, OK, well, I got that wrong and that wrong and that wrong. But this now I'm finally I'm not there at all. You brought up something in that. Uh, diatribe that I meant to say during the first segment, which was, and I think is important for people who think we're being too harsh and too critical about Ohio state right now. Imagine that game that they played on Saturday had been the offensive performance that they put on the field against Georgia in a playoff game. Well, imagine that's, if that's it's all we're asking. I mean, that's, that's the end of this. Do they score at all? Like, I mean, you're getting, you're getting completely blown off the field probably. And I just don't know. I, I'm not sure about what that looks like, like against Purdue, Michigan State, and Michigan. Because yeah. again, I'm telling you, man, if you think like, oh, JoJo Doman, he just it's like, okay, man, I don't. No offense to JoJo Doman, there are guys coming that will. JoJo Doman is not going to be a first round pick. There's some first round picks coming on opposing defenses. So strap in. Ballot box and who's number two? I think we can probably both talk about it at the same time and. I don't know. You predicted that the first playoff rankings would affect the AP poll. Oregon jumps back ahead of Ohio State in the AP yeah, poll this week. No offense, but again, voters are saps. They're sheep. They don't know what they think. They have to be told what they think. So it's fine. There's two things that I think I mostly want to talk about in regards to the polls and actually the playoff rankings. So one is this. The second most important is this. I actually, in the end, Michigan State's loss doesn't matter frankly, because I've been saying a one loss Big Ten team is in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a one loss Big Ten champ. And all it does, actually, it, it just prevents that weird tiebreaker circle that we talked about last week, where what if Michigan State, Michigan and Ohio State all beat each other and those are their only Big Ten losses? Now that's off the table. 
Right. So it, it simplifies things. But if Michigan State beats Ohio State and wins its other two regular season games, Michigan State will have one Big Ten loss. Ohio State will have one Big Ten loss. Michigan will have two Big Ten losses because, or right? So, or it's. Yeah, yeah. Somebody's Michigan gonna have State, two. yeah. Michigan State, right. So that Michigan State, if it beats Ohio State and wins out, that's one loss. And then the Michigan or Ohio State, right? So yeah, then like, one of those teams would take a second Big Ten loss. Because they'd have a head, because Michigan would take the second or Ohio State. Right. Michigan State is in if they went out, which was sort of the case before. Like Michigan State's lost some wiggle room, but Michigan State's not out of it. So like it like where they're ranked. This week by the playoff committee, they're clearly going to come down from third. They'll probably be behind Ohio State because Ohio State's loss is a better loss. But if Ohio State's like six and Michigan State's eight, like it's still a top 10 game. It's still most of the stuff is there. So I do think in the moment, people might have been like, oh, like it almost doesn't matter. The second thing is I've been saying Ohio, the big one loss Big Ten champ is in if it wins out, right? And, and so, all right, Michigan State gets a loss. Maybe that takes a little bit of luster off that. I also was assuming, like, I guess I should have said, like, if you look good. If Ohio State looks like it is barely winning every week, like, I don't know. And Oregon wins out and Oklahoma wins out. Now, Cincinnati has not been looking great either. But, like, I, to me, there was a world where if the Big Ten's this good, they're just going to say, man, we need the Big Ten champion. But I, I don't think that is – that did not take into account Ohio State getting kind of bailed out on a no call on third down with six minutes left where Nebraska is down six and trying to drive for the winning touchdown. So I don't think the committee liked that game. Now, maybe they think Nebraska is good because they played everybody close, but I also think it's very possible. Who do you think uh, – who do you have ranked – now? here's a comparison that I'm curious about for this week for the playoff rankings. Who do you have ranked higher, Ohio State or Oklahoma? Oklahoma. Last week, Ohio State was five. Oklahoma was eight. Yes. And Oklahoma has done what Ohio State did against Nebraska more often. Yes. Because they've done that repeatedly. But when Ohio State does it now, it like cracks the door. And the other thing is, I thought Ohio State was in a good spot because their worst performance, they made a change after it. And Oklahoma, a lot of their bad performances, they made a change after it. So you could say, well, those teams are trending the right way. There's nothing that's going to change wholesale about the Ohio State offense. That was now Garrett Wilson didn't play. Maybe the committee will take that into some great effect, but basically that's how they do it. That's what they do. Those are their guys. So they have less of an excuse than Oklahoma. Oklahoma can almost try to the committee. If they want to, can wipe out the first six games and be like, well, then they made the switch. It took Caleb Williams a little time, but now we see what they are. This is the real Oklahoma with Caleb Williams. What's the real Ohio State? I think it's possible Ohio State is behind Oklahoma this week. I'm not saying it's the end of the world if they are, but that's we can't pretend that a win is a win is a win. It's just not. It's going to affect their playoff standing, and I think they're still in if they win out, but we can't pretend that the committee's not watching every single week. I have not written my playoff predictor. I think off the top of my head, before I really break it down, I think I will probably predict Oregon and Ohio State to both be in the top four, just based on the combination of what we saw from the poll from the rankings last week and this past weekend's results. I don't know that the 
because Oklahoma was idle this past week. So are they going to jump over both Oregon and Ohio State or either one of them? And I, it seemed pretty obvious based on the way they talked last week. We talked about this, that the committee, I think, thinks Ohio State's better than Oregon, but they had to put Oregon ahead. So I don't know. That becomes that'll be an interesting question. I will say I understand what you're saying about the style points and how we maybe need to keep that in the back of our mind more than we did a couple weeks ago. I think though, that it may not matter as long as Ohio state wins out because so the next team they're about to play is Purdue. Purdue is not in the top 25, but I am pretty sure they're going to be in the top 25 of the rankings tomorrow night. Probably. Yes, I agree. But when they've got the win over Iowa, they've got the win over and, and their losses are Wisconsin who was ranked in the committee yep. by the committee, Notre Dame, who was ranked by the committee pretty high and Minnesota, who was ranked by the committee. It was a home loss. It's their worst loss was at home to Minnesota, a team that was 20th in the playoff rankings last week. I so think I th- they'll basically take Minnesota's spot. Probably, which is, and I had them a little bit higher even than even in my poll, but whatever. So they, so I think that's going to be a value win for Ohio state without much style points, Michigan state, and Michigan could both still be top 10 teams in the rankings, the playoff rankings, when Ohio State plays them. I don't think you need style points in either of those games. And it, the momentum is building for Wisconsin to be the team that they're going to play out of the West, which right. might be the, a better defense than any of these teams we've been talking about. And they're going to potentially be a top 15 team by then in the rankings, as long as they keep winning. So I don't think they necessarily need style points because the rankings are going to be really are going to be there for all these teams that they still have yet to play. I think you're right. I think you make it very, I I think you're right. I still think, yes, one last big 10 champ is in, but I also think there's something style points is not like they didn't play that well. They didn't look that good. That's real. Style points may not not be the best way to describe that. So so like the idea of and dominance. We were looking at Ohio. We're the committee. We were looking at Ohio State. They have this loss, but we thought, man, they might have the best offense in the country. When they get it together, this, all the play. If they all of a sudden don't look anything like the best offense in the country, it's like, oh, no, they only look like the best offense in the country because their schedule stunk. Their offense is good, but it's really not any better than Oklahoma's or Oregon's when Joe Moorhead's getting it rolling with Anthony Brown or – Alabama, when Bryce Young's at his peak, and again, Alabama did not look great. Bryce Young is having some of the same stuff. I was just watching some highlights of people saying, you know, Bryce Young's not taking open receivers who were there. Young quarterback maturation, both for CJ Stroud and Bryce Young, uh, very similar paths. But that's all I'm saying. Like, I just, I wouldn't close your eyes and and say, uh, as long as Ohio State was this game by a field goal, they're good to go because. I hear you. I, you, I wouldn't want to crack that door. Don't crack that door if you're as good as Ohio State is. Maybe it's, it's also worth saying that it's not just getting in that has repercussions here. It's where are you seated? Like, does does sputtering a little bit give the playoff committee enough room to keep you at give you a number four seed ceiling? And now you have to play Georgia in the first round, potentially, as opposed to the, the, the clear dominant team so far in college football or do you get to not have to play them till the national championship game? No, I think that's true. Again, my main point in the end is if their offense isn't better, I think they have a chance to lose. That's by far the bigger issue of is their offense maybe not as dynamic. And then therefore 
they all win close and they're 12 and one and they've beaten four straight ranked teams, but they didn't look that dominant. They're still, in. they're almost certainly still in, but it's just, it's just a matter of, are you sure offensively that's good enough against what they have coming? Well, we made you wait for it, but at least we terrified you. Hope you enjoyed that episode of Buckeye Talk. We'll be also back. Also good slogan. We'll be back Wednesday morning with the uh, follow-up to what we hear from Ryan Day and whoever else we talk to on Monday. It'll be interesting to hear what he has to say after his own rewatch of everything, get an update on Garrett Wilson, maybe get some clarity on what the quarterback situation is, the depth at quarterback, and is Quinn Ewers now QB3 for the rest of this year? And is he ready to play and will that ever matter uh, some questions i'm sure to delve into there get the text 614-350-3315 we'll be texting those updates right as they come out of ryan day's mouth at the woody on tuesday for doug Maurice, i'm nathan baird and that was buckeye talk <laughs>